Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. In response to uh, the economic impacts from the coronavirus, the Federal Reserve is stepping up and stepping in in a big way, supporting liquidity in the market, not just buying treasuries, but also going into the corporate bond market. To get a sense of what that means for the credit markets, we welcome Bob Michael. Bob's the Chief Investment Officer and Head of Global Fixed Income, Currency, and Commodities at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. So as we take a look at what the Fed is doing here in its support of the markets and liquidity in the markets. What do you make of their moves into the corporate credit market? Uh, Good morning, Paul. I I think the moves into the corporate market and also let's not forget into the municipal market and into parts of the non-agency mortgage market were critical and necessary. So I applaud it. Um, they they had to keep those markets functioning. They they couldn't allow what was happening in those markets where they were effectively frozen with very little trading going on because they were perceived to be outside of any kind of central bank safety net uh, to continue to operate that way. So I, I think it was a good first step. Bob, the Fed has said that they are going to delve in the, into the corporate debt market. They have yet to actually do so. And I think it's interesting that yesterday, Fed Chair Jay Powell indicated they were willing to go further, and yet they haven't even taken the first steps when it comes to actually implementing it in the credit markets. Do you think the market's gotten ahead of itself, piling into junk bonds in particular, with the expectation that they'll be backstopped by the Fed? Yeah, I, I think so. I, and when you think about what the Fed is doing, they're they're going to buy uh, fallen angels or companies that were rated investment grade towards the end of March uh, that may drop into the high yield market. I think that's smart because those are companies that were running basically investment grade financials before the crisis. The crisis isn't their fault. And you are putting too much pressure on the rating agencies. You're effectively telling the rating agencies without uh, being able to buy uh, fallen angels that they could be leveling a death sentence on these companies. So they, they took that away. But when we look at their support of the high yield market, we estimate that it will be roughly 10% of the high yield market. Uh, it's not a lot. Uh, it will keep the high yield market functioning. But it also doesn't prevent high-yield companies from uh, defaulting. I think you're going to see a rise in default rates for a prolonged period of time. So, Bob, here's what I'm struggling to understand. Yesterday, after Fed Chair Jay Powell's press conference, about half a billion dollars flowed into HYG, or at least that was the total amount of flows yesterday into the biggest U.S. high-yield bond ETF which buys the broad market, not just fallen angels. And you said that you do think the market's gotten a little ahead of itself. So does that mean that you're selling high-yield bonds here? What does that mean in terms of your positioning? Well, it means a lot of things. I I think uh, a a lot of the market got confused when he said there would be a new term sheet on the Main Street lending facility. 
And most investors took that to mean that the leverage limit that was put in place might be relaxed or eliminated, which would then broaden out the coverage uh, to more highly levered companies in a broader array of, of the universe. After all, they, they are employers. And I think people initially uh, went to that. We step back and say, hang on. In this market, you've got to take every company and you've got to stress it. And we do multiple stress tests trying to think, you know, how 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 deep could the recession go for how long? Where does it peak in unemployment? We do things like a shutdown for nine months and unemployment peaking at over 20 percent and then see what a company's balance sheet could look like. Could it withstand it? Do they have access to capital? And by the way, when you run that kind of stress, you find a lot of companies, even though they may have access to capital at that point in time, actually it doesn't make sense for them to do additional borrowing because they'll realize at the other end of this, their ability to pay back all that debt won't be there. The market's got to start to realize that just because there's access to lending and borrowing doesn't mean companies will continue to take on another turn of leverage. At some point, they'll realize they can't service it. So, Bob, given you know the backdrop for your economic outlook at, at J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Asset Management, how much risk are you guys willing to take right now? A very moderate level of risk. In fixed income, the, the core of our portfolios are invested along the theme of co-invest with the central banks. What they're buying, you buy. That's a pretty good safety net, at least for liquidity around you. Then roll up your sleeves and, and look at what falls outside of that safety net in, in the, the corporate space, in the securitized space, in the muni space, and see who can withstand an extended period of a shutdown uh, and high unemployment. Uh, and, and you find out that there are some companies out there, there are some industries that can, but there are an awful lot that can't. I'm just wondering, Bob, what's your base case? You said you're, you're looking at potential stress cases of nine months. Just quickly here, what's your base case for the economy? Well, our, our base case is that that you don't return to normal um, for a while and that we will see unemployment peak at over 20%. And then as you start to get to the end of, of 2021, you're down to about 9%. Now that may seem great relative to a peak of over 20%, but let's not forget that during the financial crisis, unemployment peaked at 10%. And we know what kind of pain it was to try to recover from that. So there's a lot of hardship ahead. This feels to me like the second quarter of 2008, where the first quarter was horrible. There were policy responses um, and, and the market immediately became optimistic. And then the horror of what had actually happened starts to hit into the data. Bob Michael with a pretty bleak assessment. Uh, Bob, you've been right many times. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Bob Michael, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, saying invest alongside the Fed. Don't go into much riskier credit. And really, the idea that this reminds him a lot of the second quarter of 2008 when people said Bear Stearns was an anomaly. And then, of course, in September, the Leland moment. 
It is the story of the year and a story that continues, and that is that big tech continues to outperform. Facebook actually had been under pressure among the big tech names ahead of yesterday's earnings report, but they blew expectations out of the water and actually even pointed to some stability in ad revenue. Their shares up 4.6%. To help make sense of all that we've learned in the advertising model of a new era, Laura Martin joins us now, senior media analyst with Needham & Company. And I want to ask Laura, just starting with the Facebook and the Google earnings or Alphabet earnings that we've gotten, do you get this sense that the tech giants will somehow win out from this period of time in the long term in, ter- in, in terms of consolidating viewers and consolidating ad revenue? Um, the answer is yes, because of their, enor- their balance sheet strength. So uh, uh, Alphabet's balance sheet had over $100 billion of cash, and they had positive free cash flow of $5.4 billion in the first quarter. Uh, Facebook, which is a much smaller company, had $7.5 billion of free cash flow, and they have $60 billion on the balance sheet. Both com- uh, ca- That's cash. Um, both companies are paying all of their hourly workers, all of the people who aren't coming to work, and Facebook said they're still going to hire 10,000 people this year, which means these companies are going to persist even if they go into cash losses, they will not go bankrupt. They will have access to capital, mostly their own, and therefore they will survive when some of their competitors will go under. So, Laura, I was looking, uh, I was, you know, looking at some of the guidance or some of the commentary from Facebook last night, and they were talking about April advertising revenue being kind of flattish for the first uh, few weeks of April versus last year. I find that really hard to believe given what's going on out there in the economy. How do you think ad revenue for even even the digital media companies over the next uh, you know several uh, months will look? Well, so I don't know if you remember, Paul, back to their IPO, about 80% of their revenue came from something called app installs, which was like a lead gen. Remember Zenga Games and yep. Farmville and all that stuff, where they would get like a buck if you spent five bucks? Well, that's what's happening now is they have literally not talked about, let's call that direct response, which is what that's called, in 10 quarters. All they do is talk about advertising for small and large businesses. So yesterday, the reason they're flat is because 30% of their revenue is up 30%, and it is those app installs or that direct response. And they have really downplayed that vertical, that, like, that kind of advertising, but that is what's buoying them. And it's the same thing that buoyed Snap, right? So Snap also saw its CR up and its ad revenue in April was up 15% because so much of their revenue is up 30%. But at Facebook, what we're seeing is a floor created by these app installs, this direct response, and the fact that when there's a target market, they don't sell keywords like Google sells travel. Well, if travel disappears, they can't sell a travel keyword to a jeweler or to something, you know, a healthcare worker. But that's not true of Facebook. If Facebook is trying to target everybody listening to you today, all the smart people listening to you today, and suddenly travel, like the Four Seasons in Budapest, stops advertising, that's okay. They can sell all of us to the jeweler or to a game app because we're the same demo. So what we're getting is a better auction result at Facebook, whereas keywords are siloed, and therefore they're just having zeros in some categories for keywords over at Google. So, Laura, how much of this dominance has already been priced in to Facebook? 
a good question. I mean, the fact it's up means 50 of us didn't really understand, the 50 analysts that cover it didn't really understand the business model. Similarly to Google, their robustness up 10% yesterday meant that despite the 40 people that cover Google, we didn't understand how their business model worked. I mean, you saw YouTube was up 33% in revenue in the first quarter. So part of what's happening is we make assumptions based on what they disclose over 10 quarters. And then when COVID pushes on those business models and they perform differently, we start asking questions about why that is. And we learn more about what's underlying those business models, like the fact that direct response is still 30% of Facebook's advertising and Google's is zero direct response. So, Laura, let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about some of the big media companies that you've got that you've been covering for so long. How do you think this new world that we're in, maybe this new normal that we may be going into, is going to impact uh, the big media companies? Have you changed kind of your outlook at all? So I think what we're waiting to see here, Paul, is A, as you know, TV is bought well in advance. Locals bought three weeks in advance. Nationals bought like a year in advance. So we're actually expecting Q1 to be more robust for the old media companies. But without live sports, there's a big revenue downdraft because that's 20 to 30 percent, um, depending on the season, of total advertising. And it deferred, you know, obviously it hurts ESPN most and Fox least because they don't really have um, basketball, which is the current season. So I'm looking for the impact of live sports, which I don't think is a long-term impact. I'm looking at disconnects from the TV ecosystem, which hurts most of these companies in their subscription revenue line. And then I'm interested in what they say about the upfront, because normally, as you know, in May, 80% of ad inventory is bought in May for the next year. Well, no one's making new season episodes. So we're not going to have actually a fall season unless people go back to work, like actors go back to work in fall. So I'm very interested to see with the $8 billion that is normally committed in the upfront in May, if we're not going to have programming in the new uh, semester, the new fall season. I'm interested in what they say about that. Laura, just about a minute here, but I'm wondering whether this will shift the uh, the dominance to online advertising in terms of spending. I know that the 30-second ad has been resilient in terms of being and commanding the highest price, but is that going to shift with more of the budget going to online providers? So Facebook specifically said they are seeing no offline budgets moving into their world, everything they're seeing was a pre-existing budget that had automated controls. And as CPMs have fallen by 16% at Facebook, those budgets step up. Um, also, Google asserts that it will hasten the, um, you know, the adoption of uh, digital. But I just think it's too early to tell. I mean, COVID literally happened the first week in March, right? That's when they said they all hit a wall, the first week in March. And it's now round numbers the second week in April. So I think it's too early to see. I think consumer behavior might be easier to predict. Consumers are going to use e-commerce more. Consumers may use digital outlets more. But on the advertiser side, I just don't think advertisers can react in four weeks to what's happening in a pandemic. Laura Martin, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on the media and digital landscape. Laura Martin, Senior Media Analyst for Needham Company, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. We appreciate that. So, Lisa, I think, you know, the kind of the takeaway here is, Boy, these digital media companies, they were strong going into this pandemic, and it looks like they're going to be coming stronger on the way out. 
Yeah, I just have to wonder about consolidation. And I've read a number of lawyers who have commented saying that they don't think the antitrust regulators are going to be that harsh on big tech looking to acquire competitors that might you know, yeah. be otherwise going out of business. Yeah, because you know, going into the pandemic, the big tech was clearly uh, under the regulatory microscope, and maybe that has been a uh, shift a little bit, which could, again, be a benefit for the big tech. Yesterday, Fed Chair Jay Powell sounded about as somber as a Fed chair could get. He had a pretty dire outlook for the U.S. economy, and rightly so, given the fact that 10 years of job gains has been more than wiped out in just six weeks. Joining us now is someone with intimate knowledge of both the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department, Nathan Sheets, Chief Economist for PGM Fixed Income. Joining us now, Nathan, so glad to have you on with all of your insights. I want you to give us a sense of your thoughts on the Fed's efforts to backstop corporate debt in particular, because Fed Chair Jay Powell had an opportunity yesterday to set expectations straight and say the Fed isn't going to delve deeper into junk. He did not do that. In fact, said that they were prepared to do more. And the net effect was more money into junk bonds. What's your take? Well, Jay Powell was categorical that uh, the Federal Reserve is prepared to bring the full force of its balance sheet uh, to bear in supporting the financial markets generally. But I think as your question suggests, there are remaining questions about various pockets of the market. And in, uh, in reality, how aggressive is the Federal Reserve going to be? And I have to say that uh, as I've seen some of the soundings from the Federal Reserve, uh, about its corporate purchase programs, it has left me with some questions. For example, before a company is eligible to have its bonds purchased, even on the secondary market, it looks like it's going to have to fill out a form and, and make a number of, of attestations to the Federal Reserve. And I, I think it's an open question as to how many, how many firms uh, uh, are going to be willing to do this? And where is it going to leave the corporate bond markets relative to the headline that the Fed is buying? So I think there are real questions about the Fed's efforts in that particular space. More broadly, they're committed. Uh, they'll, they'll do what's necessary. They'll use all tools. But certain corners of the markets, I think uh, we still have a lot to, lot to learn about how far they're willing to go. So, Nathan, you mentioned tools in the toolbox. What else realistically can the Fed do going forward if this pandemic is uh, longer than perhaps currently anticipated? So, uh, qualitatively, in terms of supporting the markets, I think that they are bringing to bear uh, the lion's share, maybe, maybe the totality of what they have. Uh, they are uh, uh, prepared to buy aggressively. They're keeping uh, rates low. Uh, they're expanding their balance sheet in a very significant way. Uh, but quantitatively, I think that we can see uh, meaningful further increases in the size of the balance sheet. And then in addition, uh, the Congress has allocated over $450 billion to the Treasury to backstop Federal Reserve facilities. 
and less than half of that money has been allocated to date. And most of those facilities, as I was suggesting, the corporate's an example of this, are not even up and running yet. So I would say job one for the Federal Reserve is to get these facilities up and running and then to make sure that they are actually meeting the needs in the markets. Uh, and uh, from there, uh, if, if those needs end up being uh, greater, the Fed has plenty of, of additional firepower to bring to bear, given its yeah. balance sheet and that war chest with the Treasury. So, Nathan, let's go there to that Main Street loan program. We got some news today saying that the Fed plans to expand yeah. the parameters for potential applicants. And, and Bill Dudley, former New York Fed president, had a great column about this yesterday, talking about how difficult it will be for the Fed to thread the needle here. Just if you had a chance to look at the at the news today and kind of give us a sense of what it means in terms of which businesses will be able to access this? I, I, I did see this, and I think your analogy to threading the needle is exactly right. So on the one hand, moving into this space is very difficult for the Fed and that they're taking on their balance sheet potentially a broad range of heterogeneous uh, collateral that they're not really that familiar with. Uh, on the other hand, the needs in this space are tremendous in that many of the firms that are eligible for this facility are the high-yield uh, issuers uh, and high-yield companies that are just absolutely uh, being pummeled. So then the question is, how do you design a facility that meets their needs while at the same time uh, it doesn't make the Fed feel too uncomfortable given its, uh, its risk tolerance? And I think what we saw in this revision today was an effort to fine-tune it and to make it more attractive to small uh, borrowers in that they uh, cut the minimum uh, loan size from a million dollars down in down to five hundred thousand. It uh, added a new class of loans that would be eligible, and specifically companies that are deemed to be uh, somewhat riskier. But another concern is that uh, for many of the larger firms that are eligible, the maximum loan size is pretty small. Right. So there are there are many constraints on this thing. We saw the Fed kind of move in this direction, but it remains to be seen how big and how aggressive this facility is going to be. I think this, along with the corporate program, is the big question mark. And Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts and commentary. Nathan Sheets, Chief Economist and Head of Macroeconomic Research at PGM Fixed Income, joining us here with thoughts on the Fed and all the programs uh, that are out there, Lisa, and as uh, Nathan was suggesting, it's you know, I think right now the key issue for the markets is actually getting those uh, programs up and running, getting the cash uh, into the marketplace. We will have more on that coming during the remainder of the show. This is Bloomberg. It's time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined today by Opinion columnist Liam Denning, giving us some thoughts on a couple things I want to look at with you, Liam. First, Tesla reported some numbers last night. The stock's up 5%. Um, looking at the stock here, boy, it just had an extraordinary up 100% this year. Just extraordinary. What are some of the key takeaways for you, Liam, uh, from what we heard from Elon Musk and company? Well, for me, uh, you know, it all comes down to the numbers, which which tend to get obscured, um, you know, during the the actual theatre of, of Tesla's earnings call. <laughs> um, this is the third uh, quote unquote surprise profit from Tesla in a 
row. Uh, the first one was uh, announced back in October, and since since then, um, you know, those three gap profits have added up to uh, the uh, the princely sum of $264 million. Now, in the meantime, the company's value has surged by, I think it's up about $120 billion or so. So there is still this fundamental disconnect um, between Tesla's valuation and the actual results that it's producing. And I actually think, um, you know, the results we got uh, carried some pretty... Um, pretty serious portents of, of what's going to happen in the current quarter. All right. Before we dig into what's going to happen in the current quarter, shares of Tesla up nearly 5%. And this comes after Elon Musk pulled an Elon Musk, went on one of his tantrums <laughs> uh, during the Tesla earnings call, talking about some of the stay-at-home orders. We have a clip of that. Why don't you take a listen? To say that they cannot leave their house um, and they will be arrested if they do, this is this is a this is a this is fascist. This is not democratic. This is not freedom. Give people back their goddamn freedom. That was Elon Musk uh, coming out against orders that have been said to save possibly thousands, if not millions, of lives in order to prevent the spread of the pandemic. Uh, I don't want you to weigh in necessarily on your views and social distancing and some of the policies. Uh, I'll save you that, uh, Liam. But I do want to get a sense of what we can ex uh, expect from Tesla going forward, whether it really does have the hope of the entire auto industry at a time when oil prices are plunging. Well, I think the first thing to say is, you know, if I was running a company that had been built on the back of billions of dollars of subsidy and was pivoting strongly to a market run by the uh, the Chinese Communist Party, I'm not sure I would necessarily wrap myself in the flag of libertarianism. Um, I think what this speaks to is really anxiety at Tesla because it is very much a momentum company and a momentum stock. And I think any car manufacturer uh, will tell you that if you have a plant where the utilization suddenly drops to zero, that starts to have a serious impact on your profits and cash flow pretty quickly. Now, going back to the first quarter results, it's worth remembering that Tesla didn't really shut down its main Fremont factory until the very last week of March. So when we look at the cash burn, which was something like $900 million, you have to remember that that was in the context of a quarter where actually the plant was running virtually all of it. So I think in the second quarter, particularly with the lockdowns being extended into next month, um, we're going to see some really serious cash burn in the second quarter results. And so I think, um, you know, Musk's comments about fascism really speak to a, a, a deep need on the part of the company to actually get that plant reopened. So uh, just kind of where I wanted to go, Liam, is there any sense of when that plant will be reopened? It's not like they have plants all over the world, like some of the big uh, three automakers, for example, and they can kind of shift production. They're kind of dependent pretty you know, significantly on that Fremont plant. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the Chinese plant is getting back up and running, but that's, that's a new plant. It, it can't offset what's happening in the U.S. anytime soon. Um, as for when the other plant opens, I mean, right now your guess is as good as mine, right? Uh, it depends on when California lifts yeah. its uh, stay-at-home orders. 
Um, and then, of course, it will take a little time for the plant to get back up to speed. Uh, and then with, we, we shouldn't ignore the other side of this, which is demand. I mean, these are high-priced items uh, in a U.S. economy where, you know, 30 million people are far for unemployment. There's the deep uh, damage is being inflicted on incomes worldwide. Um, so I think, you know, this isn't something that's going to go away quickly. Liam, about 20 seconds here. I'm just wondering, uh, shifting gears to the oil majors, do you think that any of the major oil companies will preserve their dividend after this route? I think the U.S. companies will try their hardest to preserve it because, you know, after a decade of really poor returns, it's, it's, it's really the only thing that investors have to hang on to. Now, the, U, the U.K. majors had the highest dividend yields of, of all of them and so had a really strong signal to cut. All the companies are facing a very challenging environment where they're having to balance spending versus dividends. But I think the U.S. companies will hold out the longest. Liam Denning, thank you so much for taking the time today. Liam Denning, energy mining and commodities columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, uh, talking about that Elon Musk doing <laughs> Elon Musk. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, putting it, yeah, putting it, frankly, into a more serious uh, perspective here, which is it speaks to his desperation. This is a momentum company, and the momentum for now is still with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.